0: Welcome back to Mission Daily. I'm your host, Chad Grills, CEO of Mission.org. And in today's episode, we sit down with Nick Elprin, the CEO of Domino Data Labs. Domino Data Labs is up to big things in the, you guessed it, data space. In this episode, we talk about Nick's career, some of his early times at Harvard and Bridgewater and lessons learned there, as well as how Nick got started doing what he's doing today. In this episode, you'll learn what it's like to build a company in a space that is emerging, but where others might have to squint to see it. And if you think data science is, you know, all the rage, all the buzz, it wasn't when Nick got started. So you'll learn some persuasion techniques as well as how to be persistent when the going gets tough. You'll learn about how Nick landed their first customers and why they held off on raising capital for some time. Domino is doing incredible work in the data space and be sure to tune in to today's episode and you'll hear all the details. Let's jump into it. Let's take a quick time out to thank Trinet for sponsoring independent media like Mission Daily. Hey, I know running a business isn't easy. One of the biggest challenges is HR with all its details and regulations. So I chose Trinet. Their experts make everything from payroll to benefits and even compliance really easy. And they offer full-service solutions tailored to your industry and your company, whether your team is 10 people or 1,000. For me, that means less worry and more confidence that it's taken care of the right way. You and your employees deserve the same. Check out Trinet for your HR needs today. Nick, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for taking the time. It's a rainy, foggy day here in San Francisco. You mentioned you just got back from Salesforce Tower and now we are at Domino Data Labs offices. So thanks for hosting us. Thanks for having me. Nick, we'd like to start every interview diving back all the way to childhood and getting a sense of who you are and where you came from. So where'd you, you grow know, up? You
1: want to know what my parents are like? Or yeah, this, I mean, psych- ideally, I'm a psychoanalyst. In <laughs> psycho- psychoanalysis. I grew up in San Francisco in cool. the city which makes me a rare breed i'm told yeah went was here all the way through high school and then went went over the east coast for college and what took you
0: out to harvard and yeah
1: at some level i i wanted to get away from home you know like sure. wanted to be in a different part of the country and you know wanted to have an excuse didn't want my parents to be able to come by to to see me on the weekends or whatever like wanted a little bit of space and when i was thinking about where to go to college i guess a funny story that might shed a little insight into my personality I visited a couple schools, and and there was one school that I was visiting. I had I had tons of fun in my visit there. It was, it was midnight, and the people out, the students I was staying with had a impromptu, spontaneous snowball fight in the quad. And during my time at my visit at Harvard, the folks I was staying with just wanted to study and didn't want to go out and do anything. And and so I felt like this is probably a little more my speed, like really sure. really focused on academics, and that was more the experience I wanted and <laughs> that I got.
0: Yeah. So what about academics really drew you in? Was it math? Was it, yeah, what was it that hooked you? I got into
1: programming in high school. I ran the uh, the online version of our school newspaper. This was back in the late 90s. It was sort of the still early days for web design and, and online publication. And, you know, learned HTML and web programming and JavaScript and then kind of backend database driven web development. Really liked that, like got hooked on making things, making things that, Making products, making things that were visible, that you could that users could interact with and play with. As a kid, I never had good like arts and craft skills. Like I was always sort of sloppy at drawing and you know, like it would if I tried to cut paper, it was like never straight lines and things <laughs> like that. But with programming, I there was a precision to it. It was because it was digital. I could I had an outlet for sort of a creative outlet for building and making things. So I got hooked on that. So when I got to college, you know, I was very interested in computer science and in particular, the programming aspect of it, as opposed to the more mathy theoretical side of it. So really enjoyed the classes that I took that were programming related. You know, my favorite class was the, the operating systems class where you build an operating system basically from scratch, did a lot of a lot of artificial intelligence classes. And this was back in the early 2000s, so the, kind of the, the second wave of it, graphics programming, making 3D renderings, things like that.
0: Were there any inspirations growing up or, you know, heroes or maybe local coders that you met that really got you going on the right track with all that?
1: Yeah. I mean, no one, no one that would be sort of famous enough for the audience to know, but, you know, like in, in middle school, there was a neighborhood, a neighborhood computer sort of class that I, that I started taking in Noe Valley. And I, yeah, to this day, I still, I still attribute a lot of me, a lot of getting on the path to doing web design and programming to going to that sort of after school computer class. It was run by a guy who was doing independent web design consulting and then opened this kind of like workshop and, and class to, to teach kids web programming. And yeah, I was, you know, in seventh grade and it's probably when I got hooked.
0: Very cool. And so you're out at Harvard, you're starting to get into computer science more. When did you realize like this was going to be a career or something that you were going to just really go for?
1: Well, I think wanting to pursue a career in programming and software engineering, I think think happened pretty early in college. First couple of years there, I was, I was pretty set on that. And at the time, I'd always figured I would, my stint on the East Coast would be short-lived. You know, I'd, I'd finish college there and then I figured I'd move back to the Bay Area because there are so many technology jobs out here and come end up at one of the big tech companies.
0: And... I guess life had other plans. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So uh, many listeners are probably familiar with Ray Dalio. In 1975, he kicks off Bridgewater. And were you, know, were you recruited? Did you seek them out? What was that path to get into Bridgewater like?
1: Right. Another one of those sort of funny stories, that, a way things turn out, not how you expect. So... To jump ahead to the the, the surprise ending, I, yeah, I ended up at, at Bridgewater after college, but the way I ended up there was more circuitous. So like I mentioned a minute ago, I'd always planned to come back to the Bay Area, get a job at a tech company, do software development out back home. And in college, my my close friends were older than I was. They were a year or two ahead. And they a lot of them were getting jobs in the finance industry. They were going to hedge funds or banks or things like this. And this was 2003, so before the, the 2008 crash. And, you know, at the time I had this very, in retrospect, I think it was a a biased and unfair view of finance. And, you know, I sort of thought this is a sellout path and, you know, why would anyone want to go do that? And and that's not, it, it was just very... I had an allergic reaction to it. It wasn't, it was, it was, I don't want to do that. I'm, sure. I'm not,
0: that's not me. It sounds like a cultural reaction too. I'm yeah. sure you had some experiences with, yeah, yeah finance yeah, yeah. pros as we all right. have. have and yeah, yeah. I,
1: th- I think that's right. And, and especially, and I think also, yeah, being from the Bay area where anyway, yeah, yes. Cultural is sure. good, so midway through college, I had my friends who were graduating, going to do finance and, 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 and I had this sort of cognitive dissonance I was grappling with because on the one hand a finance career seemed anathema to me. But on the other hand, I had these people I really liked and identified with who were going to do that. And so I, and they were telling me like, hey, look, it's great. You should give it a shot. You know, you should come. They're trying to recruit me to go do internships and whatever. And so I thought, and it was, I was very conscious at the time. I still remember my thought process vividly. I thought I will go do an internship in finance to prove to myself, to confirm my hypothesis, like to prove to myself, this isn't for me. I don't want this. So that I can then go go, go back to the barrier, get a job at a tech company without any regret, knowing that I didn't, I'll never have second thoughts or doubts about sure. passing up finance. So the summer after my junior year of college, I did an internship at Bridgewater. Bridgewater recruited on campus. So, and actually, and I remember the, the interview that the Bridgewater folks did was more appealing to me than what any of the other finance firms did. The other finance firms had like, math and algorithm brain teasers and I remember the Bridgewater interview that the guy interviewing me just wanted to talk about the most recent books I'd read and what books I liked and it felt like there was a sort of a more uh, getting at a deeper level of what made me tick so I did my Bridgewater internship and again with going in with the view that like I'm going to hate this and then I'll have no regrets passing it up managing and-
0: expectations well
1: <laughs> <laughs> and I had the opposite experience of what I was expecting to have I really liked the people. Uh, I was not finance bros. You know, they were like good, good, thoughtful people and really interesting, hard problems. And I was doing programming. I was doing software development. So it was fun, rewarding work and had a great time and decided
0: to go back full time after college. Very cool. And so at the time, you're going back to build quantitative models or what are you working on specifically there?
1: Right. Bridgewater does build It did build algorithmic investment strategies, And they had people who did that work. I built the internal products and tools and platforms that other people in the company used to build those models. So, you know, if we're talking by analogy, it's a little weird to draw analogies here, but think of it as like there are software engineers who build IDEs, development tools that other software engineers use to build their software. That's by analogy, kind of what I was working on Those the tools and the internal platforms that quants use to do their, their economic research.
0: And so you're building these platforms and obviously the culture there is something that's uh, famous now, but in the early days, or infamous, yeah. infamous. Yeah, definitely. In the early days, I'd imagine a lot of it was brand new, like the recording of conversations and everything like that. How did you learn to fit in there? And what, what were your thoughts about all that, that that was going on? Yeah. My
1: internship there was 2004 and then I, I joined full-time in 2005. And at the time Bridgewater was like about 200, 250 people, something like that. And Ray hadn't written down the principles. The culture wasn't codified. It was just in the water, so to speak. You know, it was just the way people naturally were. And it was a couple of years after that, that Ray and and the company more broadly started to codify and to write it down as I think as a way of helping the company scale and make sure everyone stayed on the same page about core values as the company grew. But, you know, at at the time, like I, I think Bridgewater's culture is polarizing. I think people either love it or hate it. And... I loved it. Like it was, it was great for me. I didn't feel like I had to adjust. I felt like it was naturally the way I'd been a lot of my life. And so I sort of felt like I was now at home among a group of people who were also like me. And that was refreshing and
0: liberating. Definitely. And so as you're there, are you starting to plan your next steps? Are you thinking about coming back West and how'd you end up back here?
1: Great. Yeah. So no, I, I wasn't planning next steps. And I should say, I, I mean, I spent seven years at Bridgewater. So it, it was, I was really proud of what I accomplished there, made a lot of great relationships, built a lot of great technology and product and, and learned a ton. And, you know, it's maybe, you know, six years in, something like that, a couple things started happening. One, I, I'd always wanted to get back to the Bay Area. I do feel at home in the Bay Area and the East Coast. I always felt a little like a fish out of water on the East Coast. Same here. <laughs> and, and and the weather's terrible. Definitely. That's somewhat superficial. The other thing that was going on for me was I I felt like my kind of personal growth and learning was starting to plateau. I felt a little stagnant. I'm like a I'm a personal growth junkie. I think it's my drug. You know, like some people run marathons or climb mountains or whatever. I like crave the experience of feeling like I'm like I'm almost about to drown in a hard problem right. and then finally getting my head above water and feeling like, okay, I accomplished that and I've, I've learned a lot because of it. And if I, I like to look back at myself six months in the past or a year in the past and think oh, that past version of me was so naive, he had no idea what he was doing. And if I don't have that experience, then I'm really bored and restless and and like psychically unsettled. Sure. So I, I was starting to have that experience. Uh, I've done a lot here, but I, I feel like I'm not learning and growing at a rate I want to be. And at the same time, I was I was looking down the road and I was seeing my my future self get more risk averse. I was getting ready to get engaged. I was imagining my 10-year future and thinking, I could stay here. This would be really comfortable. But I imagined my 10-year-in-the-future self looking back and having a lot of regret. Like, why didn't I try something different when I was able to, right before I sort of got too comfortable and and risk averse. So, and I, I don't know who said it, but someone later used this phrase that I liked, which is sort of, um, trying to optimize for minimizing future regrets. So I think yeah, that, that's really what I felt is I don't want to, I have the space and the luxury now to do something different and I want to take advantage of that before I, so I don't regret not doing it later.
0: As you left Bridgewater and as you're reflecting now, what was the Biggest lesson or one that you find yourself drawing on from time to time could be a heuristic. It could be really any takeaway that you still use today that I learned from Bridgewater from my just from your time at Bridgewater. Oh, well, everything
1: that Ray wrote in his book, and I think I think it's all it's deeply insightful and it's I view it all as a a very valuable gift. Like there's a lot of wisdom there. If I were going to synthesize and group a lot of the concepts in that, I would say the importance of taking an analytical approach to problem solving. And what I mean by that is one, deeply understanding causes before jumping to solutions. Sure. And then two, like deeply understanding the cause of whatever problem you're trying to solve. So being willing to continuously ask why, right. Keep asking why until you get down to the, the deep underlying root cause of something and be disciplined and patient about understanding the cause of a problem before you jump too fast to solving. Yeah, I think- That's wise. A, a lot of folks have a, a knee-jerk reaction to try to jump to put solutions in place without really understanding what's the dynamics that are causing whatever they're trying to solve. And that was something I internalized there.
0: Very cool. So, you know, what was the final inspiration or what got you out back to the West Coast?
1: So <laughs> I wish I had a version of the story to tell that was like, though there was an epiphany or an aha moment or something right. like that. There there wasn't. It was, it was more coming to a gradual- the gradual realization, increasing confidence around, I want to be doing something different because I'm not growing at the rate I want to grow. And once I made that decision, I wanted to get the the efforts that my team was working on into a good spot. So I felt good about leaving. And, and I, so I probably took six months to make sure things were in a good spot so I could, I could feel good about how I was leaving them. And then I had, I had two former colleagues that I worked with at Bridgewater. We all worked in the same area. And... We all wanted to work together. So we, you know, we all left. We all kind of had our own different personal reasons for leaving, but we wanted to do our own thing together. And so we reconnected and said, and we took some time off, did a bunch of travel for six months, needed to decompress and everything. And but then got got back together with my two former colleagues and we said, we want to work together. Let's go figure out what a good company to build would be.
0: Hey, let's take a quick time out to thank TriNet for sponsoring independent media like Mission Daily. When you're growing your business, you'll need to solve all kinds of HR challenges, and you'll need Trinet. Trinet gives you expert advice on HR compliance, attracting top talent, and how to efficiently outsource your HR. Get started now by checking out Trinet's free e guides at trinet.com/e-guide to learn more about how to tackle these issues today. Now, let's jump back into today's episode. So you're starting to collaborate, you're starting to strategize about what that good company would be. What type of data were you using at the time or how were you going about framing the new company?
1: We took a a pretty analytical approach to figuring that out. We said, from what we could gather, startups were more likely to be successful when the founders had some unique insight into the space they were working in. Um, Or where there was a a kind of a strong fit and alignment between the founder's experience and the domain, the product, or the company they were trying to build. The founder market fit. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, so based on that, we said, okay, well, what do we know a lot about? Like, where do we have some unique insight? And we said, well, we've been building products for quants for a long time and enabling quant research in a really sophisticated environment. So let's go see if there's a, a product and a market opportunity in that space. And then we did probably about 100 interviews with different data scientists oh, wow. and quant researchers in different, different companies, some in academia, some in, some in finance, a lot of folks not in finance. And this was like mid or mid-2013. And we'd ask, it was always the same questions. We'd ask, tell us about the work you do, what slows you down, what gets in your way of, of being more productive, what frustrates you, what would let you fulfill your responsibilities better? And out of those conversations, we heard a number of recurring themes that gave us the the target. So set the target for the problems we wanted to go solve with
0: the product. So you build a large enough data set, you're starting to pattern match. And what was the yeah formation of Domino like? When did it happen?
1: So it's mid-2013. And I, you know, I mean, there was formation of a company at that stage is always, it's blurry, like what exactly that means. I, yeah. I think the corporate entity was established in the 2013 <laughs> or whatever, but you know, we were doing customer research and discovery and then it was... Somewhere in the second half of 2013, we we built our MVP, which was, and we did it in six weeks, and it was it was just the three of us, and then took that back to the set of folks we'd interviewed, and we said, hey, we heard these problems from you, we built something that we think will solve your problems. Would you try using it? And the critical thing we were able to do was to get a flywheel going of user feedback. So, and we probably interviewed initially 100 people. We probably got five of them to actually start using the MVP we built those five were giving us great feedback that informed what we should build next. And we just kept iterating like that.
0: Very cool. And what was the process like of closing your first client or when were you and your co-founders basically high-fiving that you'd
1: (laughs) got (laughs) Got money in the door? (laughs) Not sure we're, I'm not sure we're high-fiving even today. (laughs) It's funny how, how that happens. Like my experience has been, we're always looking to the next plateau. So even when we've accomplished something that is orders of magnitude greater than what we'd accomplished a few years ago, where we have our sights set on on kind of what's coming next. But let me illustrate that a little more concretely. So, our first user who paid us anything was a grad student at the University of Washington or something, and she was doing I don't remember exactly. She was doing her dissertation on I think it was like bird migrations or something, and we had this ability to you could put in your credit card number, and then we would. Our early product would bill you for like compute time for running your simulate your data science simulations or your model training jobs. And, you know, so she was paying us like a few dollars a month at the time. That was so validating and that felt so good to know we'd we'd built something that was valuable enough for a person that they were willing to pay for it. That was a quantum of accomplishment. And I remember getting we got emails from her saying how appreciative she was and how thankful she was that, you know, we made her research so much better and we made her, her life so much easier. That was great. Then our first you know, real customers we had, there was a, a direct mail marketing firm in Tennessee that did direct mail campaigns for political to solicit political donations. And they were building donor targeting models. And so they used our products. There's another threshold of breakthrough for us that was Tesla was actually an early customer of ours. And this was early, early 2014. Oh, wow. So, yeah, we went from kind of like grad students and these like really small companies to Tesla. and That was an early moment of like, OK, we're we're onto something big here.
0: Yeah. If you get one enterprise, you can get two. And if right. you get two, you can get 10. Right. And right, 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 if right. we fast forward to today, you know, your clients range from Lockheed Martin, USAA, Salesforce, among many others. Yeah. And at the time, you know, you closed your first enterprise. How long was it until you closed your second? And when did things really get rolling there?
1: so let's see so it was slow in the beginning i think in, in part because the market was early and not super mature right this is so back in 2014 there aren't a huge number of companies yet that are doing data science at scale and in fact I mean, I remember when I would talk to VCs back then. A lot of the questions and the feedback I got were like, "Hey, is data science really a big thing? Like, is this just a flash in the pan, Are there going to be a lot of data scientists?" It, so in in, in retrospect, I, th- I do I think we were very early to the market. But after Tesla in early 2014, we got pilots going. Let me say over the next year, it took over the next year we got pilots going with a few bigger bigger enterprises. But you know, really, it was like a couple every six months. It was
0: slow. Sure. Yeah. And in those early days where, you know, you're early to the market, you're having conversations with folks where they're asking questions that seem silly in retrospect. How are you keeping yourself going to keep going? <laughs> were you, uh, were you all like encouraging each other? Were you working out a lot? Were you, uh, how, how are you keeping your mental health good? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question.
1: Well, I think, you know, this is cliche, but I, I think part of it is like, you have to believe, like you have to have confidence in what you're doing. And that was the view that my co-founders and I had was, I'm sure in a lot of these cases, it breaks the other way. And then it ends up being hubris or arrogance. But what we told ourselves was we see a thing that other people don't see yet. And that's okay. Uh, Like eventually more people will see it, but we had confidence in in what we were doing. And I, I think in part that our confidence came from, from our experience in quant finance, our experience at Bridgewater seeing like, oh, this is what can be done in a really advanced quantitative research organization. And so therefore we we believe this is what the future is going to be. And then the early customers we had. So seeing what Tesla was doing, for example. Sure. You know, on a more personal note, meditation helps me a lot. I've been meditating for about 12 or 13 years and I, oh, wow, I don't think I could, I don't think I could handle the sort of emotional volatility and ups and downs of, of that the early startup experience I describe as like wandering in the wilderness. And like I was saying a minute ago, it's hard to know if you're crazy or the rest of the
0: world's crazy. Right. I think that helped keep me sane through that period. Are you meditating morning, night, 20 minutes a day, 30 minutes a day? What's, can you break that down for us? Sure. Yeah. I do 20 minutes a day.
1: Mornings are better for me because if it's in the afternoon or the evening, I get sleepy. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Very cool. And so I did some research and it looks like 2018 was your first large round of financing. That you did? It depends on me by large. The first VC money we raised was in mid-2015.
1: Okay. We bootstrapped for like almost two years, a little, like a, a little under two years. And, and it was around mid-2015 when we were starting to see enough commercial traction with large enterprises that we were confident that we could spend capital wisely. We, we never wanted to raise money for the sake of raising money and Definitely. we weren't interested in like vanity metrics. But once we had confidence in the maturation of the market and the market opportunity... And confidence in our, the value that our product was providing to our customers, we felt we could responsibly throw more gas
0: on the fire. And how'd you go about selecting investors? Because that's something that a lot of folks get caught up in the flywheel and they just want to raise money. But you're going to be working with those folks for a very long time.
1: So how'd you go about that process? That's one of the reasons that we had been bootstrapped for as long as we did is hearing horror stories about investors who, it's an irreversible decision. Very, very painful to reverse, right? Yeah, you're sort of in bed with them forever. So being, con- being mindful of potential risks around doing that was one of the reasons I had, I had held off doing it for a little while. But back in 2015, it was an easy choice for us because, like I alluded to a minute ago, a lot of the investors we, we met at the time were skeptical of our whole point of view on the market opportunity. And if you don't share a point of view with someone that basic, it's hard to work with them. So VCs who didn't think that data science was going to be big or impactful weren't interested in us and they weren't the kinds of folks we wanted to work with anyway. So I was fortunate enough to find two firms back then, Bloomberg Beta and, uh, and Zeta, a firm called Zeta, that they both had core theses around data science and machine learning, transforming the nature of work, transforming how businesses operate. Data's whole point of view is uh, data science is the next era of computing, and they only invest in companies that are doing things with big data and analytics and data science and machine learning.
0: Sounds like a perfect fit.
1: <laughs> right, So yeah. you know, so as soon as I met them, I just felt this strong click and strong connection. Like, okay, we, you know, we're on the same wavelength here. We, they get what we're doing and they get what we're about. And then you do extensive referencing of the folks on the team or the partners you'd be working with. And when I did that, you know, got glowing endorsements and glowing recommendations that gave me, gave me confidence in working with the
0: particular people there. Always do your diligence. Yeah. Wise words. And so Domino's growing a lot right now. I'd love if you could kind of take us to where you're at now, and then maybe we can wrap up the interview with where you see Domino going in the future. So... When you're describing your day-to-day work, do you even try to do that? Is it like that all over the place or what's your day-to-day like here? My
1: day-to-day is all over the place. It's yeah. a lot of context switching and it's it's a mix of external facing stuff with customers and mixed with internal stuff across products and marketing and sales and recruiting. I do a lot of recruiting. It's probably the most The highest leverage thing I can do in a lot of areas right now is bring more great people into the organization. There's not really a typical day-to-day. So sort of like back-to-back stacked meetings going between customers or or candidates or helping internal teams think about products or something like that.
0: So we have a lot of technical listeners that listen to the podcast. What's your dream cold email to get from a data scientist that's, you know, qualified and excited about what you're doing here? What type of emails like that make your day?
1: Oh, sure. Well, let me one of the things i'll i'll say to clarify a little bit about what we do i love getting emails from data scientists data scientists use our their day-to-day users of our product sure often the folks who are sending those emails are folks who are running a data science organization they might be like vp of data science or a chief analytics officer or a director of, of research or something like that and what they're often observing or noticing is i have a growing data science team or organization I've got a bunch of really valuable, really highly paid, really smart data scientists who are getting slowed down by having to manage their own infrastructure, like they're having to deal with DevOps work, and that's distracting them from breakthrough research. Or as our organization grows, I'm seeing the team is reinventing the wheel. This team is duplicating work. Right. And this is my dream cold email. I, as a chief analytics officer, am looking for a platform to centralize my data science team's work so that we can compound our knowledge and accelerate everyone's research.
0: And when you're describing this company at like a very high level and you just met somebody for the first time, do you use like GitHub for data science or is that cliche kind of like rub you the wrong way now? It's
1: okay. It doesn't rub me the wrong way. It's not wrong, but it's partially complete. Sure. So sometimes I'll, it depends who I'm talking to, sometimes I'll describe it as like, GitHub plus Heroku plus maybe Atlassian or Confluence or something for data science because we support the tracking of work like GitHub, but we also support the infrastructure automation and deployment like Heroku does. Sounds
0: like you're moving towards like a full stack
1: solution. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if I zoom out, I would say the DevOps stack, which has evolved over the last couple of decades for software development, every part of the DevOps stack or the developer stack needs an, an analog for data science. And so you need tracking like GitHub, you need deployment like Heroku, you need monitoring like New Relic. There's all demand new, new analogs for the data science world. And our vision is to provide all that in, in one integrated platform.
0: Very cool. And if we look out to the future, are there any new products, milestones, or initiatives you're working on right now that are really exciting? I know there's a lot. You all provide the platform to charities and at a discounted rate or, or free, I think. And so, yeah.
1: Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that. Some of my favorite stories about impact or having on customers are some of the nonprofits we work with. And so Audubon Society has done a bunch of great work around looking at the impact of climate change on bird populations. There's a nonprofit called Thorn, which helps law enforcement prevent child trafficking with a lot of data science work and natural language processing models and things like that. So that's great. I'm, I'm thrilled to be doing that. From a product perspective and an innovation perspective, there's something we've been working on for a while that our customers are beginning to use now, a limited availability to some of our customers around model monitoring. So I mentioned a minute ago, I think everything in the developer stack needs an analog in the data science stack. And we you know we've talked about talked about development, IDEs, GitHub, version control. at the end of that stack, if you will, sort of in the DevOps world, for software, there's been application performance monitoring and, and products like New Relic. Well, for models, models, if you've deployed a model, you have to monitor their the performance at the system level, the CPU and memory on the machines they're running on. But you also need to monitor how their prediction performance, it, whether it's degrading over time. And so because models are probabilistic and not deterministic, a model's predictive performance can degrade if the data being passed to it is changing in in the real world or it, it starts to diverge statistically from the training data you used. We've got some new product to detect model drift and monitor model prediction performance that I'm really excited about. And I think it will be a very important, very critical capability for enterprises that are putting models at the heart of their business over the next few years.
0: Very cool. And final questions are some fun ones. What is a book you're reading right now? Or what's the latest book you read that you've loved?
1: I just started reading a book called Resonate. I think it's called Resonate. That's about sort of how to make really compelling presentations that convince your audience of new ideas. So I, I know that's not it's not a super...
0: No, that's awesome. And um, have you been using those strategies like right away? And have you found any better results? I haven't started using them yet. Yeah. Okay. Just just started. Yeah. yeah. And when it comes to relaxing, what are you doing in the Bay Area? What are you doing on the weekends?
1: I have some constraints I'm operating with. I have a three-year-old daughter and a 10-month-old son. So um, I spend a lot of time at home with the family, but we've been, you know, one of the great things about the Bay Area is just the easy access to great day trips. So we've been doing a lot of day trips, Santa Cruz and Napa and Healdsburg and
0: things like that. Nice. Any favorite series or anything you're watching? Or are you a gamer or anything like that? Oh, fa- uh, like t- like TV shows? Yeah, like TV series or uh, originals. I binge watched
1: Russian Doll, which I liked. Okay. And uh, I think more on like network TV, sort of a recent innovative, clever show. I like The Good Place.
0: I okay. That? yeah, Nice. And final question. When you give advice to younger CEOs that are earlier on in their journey, what advice do you find yourself giving again and again?
1: It's going to be cliche again. I'm sure this is advice that everybody gives, but trust your instincts. Especially as a founder, you have a integrated perspective that's informing a lot of subconscious intuition and instinct that can be hard to unpack especially if you get to the stage of a company where you start it and you're beginning to you're beginning to hire more people in your first round of executives or something in in specialized disciplines who have sort of a, a focus around one particular functional area it's important to pay attention to when your instincts about what the organization needs are diverging or in conflict from what other people are telling you and yeah like It's not always the case, but my default advice would be trust your instincts.
0: Great advice. Nick, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. As a small business owner in ultra competitive Silicon Valley, I used to worry about losing my top talent. I don't anymore. And here's why. I figured out how to offer access to robust benefits like a big company does, but I couldn't do it on my own. That's where Trinet came in. Trinet helps tens of thousands of businesses across the U.S. with HR. They provide you top-notch, industry-tailored services for your HR needs. If you're building a business, you know you need a great team. Trinet is your team for HR. And when you choose Trinet, you'll help support independent media like Mission Daily. Thanks for listening.